Um, so those of you probably already gathered, my name's Paul. Hi. Uh, I'm one of the leaders here at Central Vineyard for those who, who don't know me. So today we're continuing a series that we're calling Simply Jesus. Um, and this is part of our year of biblical literacy or Yobel. Um, the basic idea is this, that in an age and in a time where people read less, they don't even read books, let alone the Bible, we're taking this whole year to rediscover the joy of becoming biblically literate. Now, over the course of this year, our hope and our prayer is that each of us would read the Bible for ourselves and in, and in the process discover this, a new relationship with this book that we often call the Word of God. So last week, Steve kicked off this series, Simply Jesus, where we're looking at the character of Jesus. And he, he kicked it off with talking about Jesus was a teacher, Jesus the, he, the teacher, and how we're not so much Christians as we are followers of Jesus, apprentices to Jesus, in order to become like him, to be with him, and to do the stuff that he did. And this week, I'm going to be looking at Jesus the healer but perhaps not in the way that you would normally expect when someone's talking about Jesus and healing. The main Bible verses that we're going to be looking at today are in the book of Mark, chapter 2. But before we go there, I just want to spend a little bit of time giving you some background, some context, and that context that I'm going to give you is the kingdom of God. Now, I'm sure many of you, if you've been around Vineyard for a while, would have heard us talk about the kingdom of God. But, those, but for those who haven't, and a refresher for those who have, um, you should know that really the kingdom of God was the central message that Jesus spoke about. Wherever Jesus went, he spoke about this thing called the kingdom of God, and then he demonstrated it. If you're new to Jesus then his life, his message can be summed up in his own words in just one sentence. And this is how the book of Mark begins. This is Jesus' own words. He says this, The time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. Some translations say believe the gospel, because that's what the word gospel means. It means good news. And these are Jesus' first recorded words in the gospel of Mark. And Mark is the first recorded gospel, or written gospel. So therefore, first recorded words of Jesus. So how does Jesus begin his ministry? By declaring that the kingdom of God has come near. What does that mean? Well, first, the kingdom of God is not simply some paradise that we go off to when we die. It refers to the rule and reign of God, not only in the future, but here today. We speak a lot about the kingdom of God in the vineyard. It's, it's a key part of our vineyard beliefs and values. And, and vineyard is committed to the theology and practice of the kingdom of God. We particularly like to refer to the kingdom of God as, as being now and not yet. You might have heard that phrase. Or sometimes already and not yet. That the kingdom of God, remember that's God's rule and reign, his will is breaking into this present age. I love that image of God's rule and reign breaking in to the present age, to the here and the now. It's a theology that really describes why sometimes we see the miracles of God, like healing, and other times we sadly don't. It's because it isn't 
fully here. That will happen when Jesus comes again, but it is certainly breaking in, and we see glimpses of it now, and it started when Jesus first came. Rich Nathan, who's a vineyard pastor and leader in uh, the Vineyard USA, put it this way. It's a long quote, so stay with me. There is a secret that God has kept for all eternity, but has now disclosed. Everyone who listens to Jesus hears the secret that God's kingdom is going to come in two stages. In the first stage, the kingdom is going to be hidden. It's not going to be obvious. You have to look for it. You have to search for it. In the second stage, God's kingdom will be evident and open. It's going to be overwhelming like a boulder from heaven. In the first stage, God's will doesn't displace every other will. In the first stage of the kingdom coming into the world, God's will is done, but so is the will of sinful human beings. So is the will of Satan. In the second stage of the coming of the kingdom, when Christ returns, there will be only one will done on earth, the will of God. Right now, during this era, God's will doesn't always win the day. God's will can be resisted. God's will can be ignored. The mystery of the kingdom is that the kingdom of God is here, but it hasn't replaced every other kingdom. The will of God is being done, but so is the will of sinful men and women, and so is the will of Satan. In this age, we're running on parallel tracks. When, Jesus, when Christ returns, creation is going to run on a monorail. Our world is going to run on the will of God. And so the kingdom of God is already here, but it's also not yet here. I don't have time today to go further into the theology of the kingdom of God, but if you would like to know more, do come and see me. I can point you in the, the direction of some resources. And if you want to go even deeper and you're a bit of a theology nerd like me, then then come and see me because we have a number of courses in this thing called the Vineyard Institute. And this year, we're really focusing on the kingdom of God. We've got a number of modules that we're working on as a small group in this church over the following sort of like three terms, really, and really focusing on the kingdom of God. So if you think, I'd love to know more about that, do come and speak to me. So let me just finish up this, this intro into the kingdom of God with a quote from, and surprise, surprise for some of you, from my favorite theologian, N.T. Wright. God's kingdom is coming in and through the work of Jesus, not by taking people away from this world, but by transforming things within this world, bringing the sphere of earth, bless you, bringing the sphere of earth into the presence and under the rule of heaven itself. So Jesus came and inaugurated the kingdom of God, Inaugurated is just this, this long theological word for something that's starting, launching something, or some, setting something in motion. And as the kingdom of God breaks into the world, we see that lepers are made clean, the sick were healed, the powers of darkness flee, ordinary people find new direction in their lives. Some people even left everything to follow him. When Jesus comes, the kingdom of God comes with him and breaks in with power and with authority. So finally, we get to our verses for today. I think possibly the longest introduction ever, so thank you for sticking with me through that. So if you have your Bibles with you, whether that's physical, 
whether that's the digital and your iPads or um, iPhones. Apparently, there are other phones and tablets, but I don't know about those. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, then we will have the words up uh, on the screen. So we're going to be in, in Mark chapter 2. So as we're turning there, um, let me just say this about the Gospel of Mark. It's my favorite gospel. Is that allowed to have a favorite gospel? Well, it is. I know lots of people love the gospel of John. They love the fact that it talks about, you know, God is love, and it talks about Jesus' divinity, about how Jesus is God. And then there are others really love Matthew because it's like a full biography of, of Jesus' life and, and fully places Jesus into the narrative of Israel. And there are some who really love Luke because it's painstakingly researched in detail. And it's just part one of a two-part epic series, if you include Luke and the book of Acts. And it explains the plan to provide salvation to the world. All great reasons for loving those Gospels. But my reason for loving the Gospel of Mark is very simple. It's because it's like an action movie. I know it's shallow, right? But it is. It's full of action. It goes, the style is one, the style is really of Jesus doing stuff. He goes from, from doing something and then explaining that stuff that he just did. And then he goes on to another piece of action and does some more stuff. It, it really demonstrates the kingdom of God. He demonstrates the kingdom of God and then he explains what he just demonstrated. It's great. Anyway, hopefully now, those who've got Bibles are now in Mark chapter 2, and we're going to be reading from verse 1 to verse 12. Are you ready? Good. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and the lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Let's just stop there for a minute. How crazy is that? Have you ever really thought about that bit of scripture if you've read it before? I mean, I don't know about you, but I always try to imagine what this is like. When I'm reading scripture, I try to imagine it, particularly when we're going through the New Testament. And this is just, this is mind-blowing. Can you imagine the scene? We've got these guys, these four men carrying a paralyzed man. They're coming, they're seeking out Jesus because they know Jesus is the source of healing. They're coming to find him. And they get to where he is, and they can't even get towards the door. It is ram-packed. There are people everywhere. And so I think most of us would admit we'd go, oh, well, we tried, turn around, go back home. I have to admit, I probably would have done that. But they're not giving up. They know that Jesus can heal their friend. So what do they do? They do what any sensible person would do. They climb up the side of the house. They clamber up onto the roof banging around up there, and then they start to dig a hole in the roof. And they dig this hole, and then they start to lower their friend down into the house. 
How? I don't have like a, a handy pulley system with them. They're having to lower each corner down to get the guide, or else he's just going to slide off, right? They've got to lo lower him down, inch by inch, making sure it's level all the way to the floor. Now imagine you're inside that house. Okay, you're listening to Jesus, what he's talking about. All of a sudden, bang, 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 bang. You're hearing people climb up the side of the house, get on the roof, bang across the roof, because it wouldn't have been easy for them, and then bits of roof start coming down as they're digging this hole big enough to lower a guy who's laying out flat on a mat. Have you ever thought about that? Amazing. And then inside, you'd be looking up, and there's this guy slowly being lowered down, inch by inch, leveling it out as it comes down. You're thinking, wow. I mean, everything would have stopped. There's no way Jesus can continue talking whilst that's going on, right? Everyone's looking up, seeing what's going to happen. Finally, he gets down, and everybody's going, this is going to be amazing. This is going to be awesome. I can't believe what's happening here. This is going to be fantastic. And as they do that, as they lower it down, then Jesus looks at them, and he says this. He says, Seize the faith of the paralyzed man's friends and says, your sins are forgiven. First, he sees their faith. He sees the friend's faith. I guess they also see the casual vandalism of creating this hole in the roof, but he sees the friend's faith. There's a whole talk or sermon that I could give on just this point alone. But there have been people in the church who have said that if you're not healed, then it's because you don't have enough faith. That you don't have enough faith for you to be healed. And I just want to say, and I'm getting on my soapbox a little bit here, I just want to say that is completely untrue. That does not line itself up with Scripture. It does not align to Scripture. We can see here that Jesus saw their friend's faith. It didn't see the per individual paralyzed man's faith, their friend's faith. So if anyone turns around and says the reason that they're not being healed is because of their lack of faith, ignore that. Cast that aside. It does not align itself up to Scripture. And the church, elements of the church have used this to completely destroy people's lives. And personally, it needs to stop. It does not line up with Scripture. Off the soapbox now. So, oh, and by the way, if, any, if anyone says that it's because of their lack of faith, just point them to this verse. That's fine. You've got my permission to do that, okay? So, Jesus says, and this is kind of the point that I want to focus on for the, the rest of this talk, and this is, Jesus looks at them and at the man and says, your sins are forgiven. Not you are healed. Not grab your mat, get up, walk, walk out. That, that's what everyone would be expecting. It's certainly what the four friends who did the casual vandalism and the paralyzed man was thinking. They're thinking, it's going to be healed. But instead, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. What is Jesus doing here? More apparently, apparently more than just ignoring the fact that this guy is paralyzed and needs healing, it begs the question, who is it that can forgive sins? Surely only God can forgive sins. 
And the Pharisees or the teachers of the law were thinking the same thing. It says here in verse 6, Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And I love this bit. The, this, I, I love it. It's my sense of humor. I can just, once again, I can imagine this. The funny thing is, Jesus immediately turns, turns to them and says, in verse 8, it says, immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is, was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? So these scribes, once again, imagine, they're thinking in their hearts. In their hearts, they're, they're thinking, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? Does he think he's God? And Jesus is like, I heard that. And they're like, whoa, how could you hear that? I wasn't saying it out loud. I was just thinking it. But you see, the scribes weren't just freaked out because Jesus knew what they were thinking. They were freaked out because they were highly offended. They were offended because actually the scribes weren't wrong. Only God can forgive sins. And so in their eyes, Jesus was blaspheming. And he was claiming to be able to do what only God can do. I'm going to spend a few minutes talking about this word, sin. And why it is that only God can forgive sins. So the word sin, I think we'd all agree, is a very churchy word. Very few people outside the church really understand it, really know what it means, and, pro- and probably don't really care. All they really know is that people in the church tell them that they sin, that they're sinners, and that they need to be saved. That's about the only context they have for that. For most people outside of the church context, they think of sin as being something that is related to desserts. They think of it as being something that is naughty, but nice. All that dessert's very sinful. That all the good things in life are probably a sin. So actually, I'm quite happy being known as a sinner because I want to say I want all those good things in life. It's no wonder that our language can be confusing to those not in the club, not in the church. Well, this word sin, I would argue, needs to be recovered in our world in our culture, our world that is filled so much with violence and hate and oppression, we need the word to be reintroduced into our world today. David Brooks, who's a writer for the New York Times, he's also a, a cultural and political commentator, he gave a series of lectures on the walls and the ramps of Christian faith in secular society. And he was talking about how Christianity and the Christian faith and the language of sin, he said there are a lot of roadblocks or walls that we build in Christian culture that completely isolate secular culture from Christianity. But he also said there are a lot of ramps that can get over those roadblocks, get over those walls. And he said, one of the ramps is our language around sin and good and evil, and that Christians have to talk about this. This is a long quote, so I'll wake you when I'm finished. David said this, a ramp is the language of good and evil. The language has become absent in the secular world. The word sin is now mostly used in reference to desserts. But if you want to talk about the deepest affairs of the heart, 
Only words like sin, soul, redemption really work. And if you don't have those words, you're losing the tools. People don't change because they decide to be better. If that happened, then New Year's resolutions would work. People decide to change because they elevate their loves. And as St. Augustine said, you become what you love. But if you can't talk about the struggle of sin, if you can't talk about why some loves are higher than other loves and about ordered versus disordered loves, you don't have the moral vocabulary, the mental toolkit to even think about how to be better. The Christian tradition gives us that. What the Christian faith has going for it is that it claims to talk about sin. Because the real evil, the real problem is something really, really deep within. You can do education, you can throw money at it, but it doesn't change the human heart. And, is, and this is the language that we need. We need this kind of language. We need to talk about sin, and we also need to talk about the need for forgiveness. We need to reintroduce that sort of language in our own lives. We need to acknowledge that we are sinners and that we all need forgiveness. But why is it that only God can forgive sins? Because when we sin, when you and I sin, God is always the most offended. It's not that others aren't offended, but God is always the most offended. Because all sin is ultimately sin against God. Don't think of sin as much as breaking a law, like don't uh, bash a big hole in my roof. Oh, it's okay, I forgive you. Think of it like this. Think of sin as a betrayal of relationship. That's what makes sin so hurtful. It's that the relationship is betrayed between you and, another, and that other person. That's what makes sin so hurtful to God. Sin is ultimately against God because it's a break in our relationship with God. We were created for God. We were created to be in relationship with God. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. So when we sin, it's a break in relationship. It's a break in the way that God created the world to work. God created the world to work peacefully and organically and harmoniously and everything to be interwoven. And sin breaks God's peace, the shalom that he set up. Sin is ultimately against God because it is rebellion against his good authority. God rules the world with good intentions and good authority and sin breaks all of that down. Sin is ultimately against God because it poisons God's world and introduces destruction and death into his world. The thing that God has set up to work properly, the way that God has ordered the world and relationships and life and love and everything that God created, you just go, I'm going to do what I like. I'm going to treat people like this, money like that, my body like this, their body like that, the environment like this. I'm just going to do it because... That's what I want to do. It breaks down everything. This is why sin is ultimately against God. And this is also why God is the only one who can forgive sins. So back to Mark 2. 
Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes say in their heart, this fellow is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? But they are busted because Jesus knows what they're thinking. And he responds with, in verse 9, which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But, what, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. There's so much in here, and I, I know I'm running out of time. So quickly, Jesus asks them a question that says, which is easier to say to this paralyzed man? Your sins are forgiven, or say, get up, take your mat, and walk, which is easier? The point is this. Anyone can claim to forgive sins. How will anyone know that you have forget that their sins are forgiven? How will anyone know? Someone could easily say, I could say, hey, I forgive all your sins. I'm the Messiah, by the way, and I just forgave all your sins. How would anyone know? There's no visual proof. But to tell a paralyzed man to pick up his mat and walk, if he doesn't get up, then you're busted. He's not walking. It didn't work. So Jesus is saying, so you know that I have the power to forgive sins, I'll do the visibly harder thing, get up and walk. Now, there is, for me anyway, some fascinating stuff in here, if you're a bit of a theology geek, around that title, the Son of Man, and how in, in the Jewish culture, the Messiah was not really seen as someone who, amongst the Jews, who was God, but the Son of Man, who is recorded in the book of Daniel, most definitely and certainly is. So, in that culture and in that context, Jesus is doubling down. Not only is he, be, is he claiming to be able to forgive sins, he's also claiming this title, the Son of Man. He is leaving no doubt in anyone's mind that he's claiming to be God. Anyone who says to you, and I've heard this argument a lot, that Jesus never claimed to be God in the Gospels, just point them to this part of Mark, because if you understand the context in which it was placed and written and to whom it was written, you will understand that Jesus is clearly claiming to be God here. Just show them this part of Mark. So the friends, the crowd, as well as the paralytic man, they were all expecting Jesus to physically heal him. But instead, Jesus saw that the paralyzed man needed what he needed most. And he gave it to him. Yes, he needed healing. But more than that, he needed his sins to be forgiven. He needed his relationship with God to be repaired. He knows that his eternal salvation is what he needed more than anything else at that moment. More than being able to walk again. So, I'm coming into land. Everyone is amazed. Everyone, even the scribes, somehow were amazed too. They're going, oh my gosh, he just read my mind, healed a paralyzed man. I've never seen anything like this. Everyone is freaking out. 
Jesus does the visibly harder thing of healing the paralytic man because he can certainly do the visibly easier thing of forgiving sins. And he can forgive sins, and that's the point. It's also important, though, to remember that the miracles of Jesus in the book of Mark are enacted sermons. He's demonstrating the kingdom of God. He's showing what the kingdom of God is all about, not just in word, but also in deed. That's why, in my humble opinion, the gospel of Mark is awesome. I'm sure you'd agree if you read it. Before I finish, I'd like to end on this quote, again, by N.T. Wright. Do I get double points for that? Yes? No? Don't care? Fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. That's four times today. Okay, this is the quote. Jesus was not primarily a teacher in the sense that we usually give that word. When Jesus did things and then commented on them, explained them, challenged people to figure out what they meant. He acted practically and symbolically, not least through his remarkable works of healing. Works that today all but the most extreme skeptics are forced to regard as in principle historical. Jesus soon became better known for healing than baptizing. And it was his remarkable healings, almost certainly, that won him a hearing. He was not a teacher who also healed. He was a prophet of the kingdom, first enacting and then explaining that kingdom. The kingdom of God is now and not yet. And we see evidence of the kingdom of God breaking into this current age when we see God heal. But more than that, we need to know that God values relationship, his relationship with you more than anything. But sin is something that separates from God. It gets in the way of that relationship. He wants you to join with him in the renewal of all things. And that begins with acknowledging that we have sinned and asking for forgiveness. And God wants to forgive your sins. Just ask him and he will. So there are two ways I think that we can respond today. And they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. So first and foremost is confessing that we have all sinned and asking for God's forgiveness. If you've never done this before, then this is a special time, right? Because you're starting a new relationship with God. You're becoming part of his family. But even if you're already giving your life to Jesus, we still mess up. We still sin. Who here doesn't sin? No one. And so although we're still part of God's family, the sin can affect our closeness, our intimacy in our relationship with God. So today, it's a chance for you to confess it and ask for forgiveness. The second way we can respond is by asking God to heal us, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Sometimes by doing the first thing, it leads to the second uh, one, and that's healing. 